And we are continuing our sermon series called The Upside Down Kingdom. And the reason we chose this series, especially leading up to Easter, and we'll look at it a few weeks after Easter, is at some level, regardless of what you believe, you have to admit this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in history. There has never been an event that revolved around a person's life that divided the calendar into, that spread like wildfire, and a person's life that we're still talking about so significantly 2,000 years later. At some level, we all have to come to some agreement and understanding that something significant happened that first day of the week 2,000 years ago. The fact that we are still talking about it 2,000 years Later, And so if the resurrection was the greatest event this world has ever seen, then what was the actual kingdom that was ushered in by this so-called king of the Jews? You see, the kingdom that Jesus ushered in through his life and through his death and resurrection was a kingdom unlike this world has ever seen. No empire has been seen like this. No kingdom has been seen such as the kingdom of God. And it begs the question, what does life look like in the upside-down kingdom of God. And today in particular, in particular, we are going to be looking at life. How do we find life in the kingdom of God? How do we find life in this upside-down kingdom? And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 28. The gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 28. This is the very word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far aside or far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man in return, give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Get a life. Get a life is a uniquely North American expression. We use the the phrase get a life typically when we see people spending too much time on things that are trivial. You might hear a mother say to her grown son, who doesn't seem motivated to move out of the house or maybe move on with life to get a life. You might hear coworkers say to some of their colleagues who maybe are spending so much time at work and never have time to hang out, whether at night or on the weekends, that you need to get a life. You hear college students ponder this question and post-college students ponder this question as they've gone to college and they get their degree, what am I going to do to get a life? 
But what's interesting is it's typically not something we ever grow out of. As a child, we want a life. In our adolescent years, we want a life. In our college years, we want to get a life. In our post-college years, we want to get a life. And there's even maybe some here today that are middle-aged or older that look back at their life and they go, what did I do with my life? They're at the end of their career and they go, what have I done with my life? They maybe look at their family and their kids that are grown and say, what did I do with my life? Boston Globe article from last year said the biggest threat facing middle-aged men is not smoking or obesity, but it's the loneliness of the fear that their life has no meaning. The fear that our life has no meaning. And we see here in Matthew chapter 16 some of the most ominous words in all of Scripture. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Jesus is saying, what benefit, what point is there to gain everything this world has to offer, but in the very end, lose the thing that matters the most, your soul. Jesus says, if you seek to want a life, Jesus says, you have to give up yours and follow me. Because if you seek to make your life about you, Jesus says, you will lose it. So what does Jesus have to say here in this passage in particular about getting a life? Well, the first thing that we have to see here is before we look at our life, we have to look at the life of Jesus. What was the calling on Jesus' life? What was the mission of Jesus? What did Jesus do? And what was he called to do? Well, we find it here in verse 21. Jesus says that he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to do what? To suffer to be killed, and to be raised up. He said, the calling on my life, the mission of my life, is to do three things, to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised up. They were the three things that he must do as the Messiah. And what immediately does Peter do? One of his chief apostles says, no, you're the Messiah. You are the one that is going to come to conquer your enemy, to destroy the kingdom of uh, the evil kingdom, and, and, and to usher in a new kingdom. You are going to ascend to your throne. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm here to conquer my enemy, but it will not be through the ascending to a throne, but ascending to a cross. You see, Jesus says, this is my mission. This is my calling. This will forever define my life. The calling to suffer, the calling to die, and the calling to be raised up. Yes, I will conquer the enemy once and for all, but it will not be through the ascension to a throne, but the ascension of a cross. And notice here in verse 21, the sense of urgency. What does Jesus say? He says, I must. He is under a holy compulsion, compelled to fulfill this mission, to submit to his father and to fulfill the mission. I must suffer. I must die. I must be raised. There is a sense of urgency and determination for Jesus to answer the calling that God, his father, has put on his life. That is his mission, to suffer and to die and to be raised up. But what's our calling? If that is the calling of Jesus, then what is the calling of those that have been called to follow him? We see it in verse 24 and 25, right? What is the mission of the people of God? Those that have been called to follow Jesus, what is their mission? He says, go and take up your recliner. 
go and lay down on your silly posturepedic. No. He says, go and take up your cross. You see, for the disciple of Jesus, there is a death that is required. He says, I, have ta- I am going to take up my cross, and you are now going to take up your cross. In fact, he says three things in verses 24 and 25. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then he says, you need to lose your life. And it's interesting there, the word life. Because in many regards, and we've certainly seen it all throughout church history, there have been plenty of men and women that have been called to literally lay down their physical life for the sake of the kingdom. And that is certainly required of the disciples of Jesus Christ. But here in particular, it doesn't use the word bios, which means your physical life. It means something deeper. Jesus here is talking about the psyche. He's talking about something deeper than just the physical life. He's pressing in and going a little further deep. And he's, what he's talking about is the inner self. He's talking about the soul. He's not necessarily talking about the physical life of the disciples. He's talking about their inner soul, the very thing inside of each one of us that explains why we do things and when we do things and how we do things, the very thing inside of each one of us that explains our drive and the decisions that we make. He's explaining the inner self, and he's saying, you need to lose it. It needs to die But what does it mean to deny yourself, to take up your cross and lose your life, to lose your inner self, to lose yourself? It requires a couple things. See, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, the one who has been called to follow Jesus, it requires two things. And it flies in the face of common culture. The first thing is you must give up this idea of self-fulfillment. See, the culture and the world, the kingdom of this world says life is all about you and you need to figure out every way possible to fulfill yourself. That there is something out there, we can't always define it, but there is always something out there that the culture and the kingdom of this world is hanging over your head and saying, if you just had this, if you just had that, then your life would be satisfied. That inner soul, that inner self would be put at rest, would be put at ease. But to see, for the disciple of Christ, denying yourself is giving up on self-fulfillment, giving up on this idea that I can somehow fulfill my life apart from God, giving up on statements like, I feel like it, if I want it, if I need it, I'll go get it, whatever it takes to acquire it. It is my God-given right. And in fact, what Jesus is calling his disciples to do in a calling of sacrifice is to give up the very things that promise to give life, but actually in return, take it all away. He's saying you need to give up the things that the world promises will bring you life, that over-promise and under-deliver actually over-promise and never deliver the satisfaction that you long for. So part of denying yourself and taking up your cross and losing yourself and losing your life is to give up on self-fulfillment. The other thing that we're called to do is give up on self-sovereignty. 
that I'm going to think the way I want to think and live the way I want to live and do the things that I want to do, that my life is all about me and I am going to rule over my life and nobody, nobody is going to tell me how to live and, how, and what to do in life. This idea of self-sovereignty, that you are the king or the queen of your domain and your life and nobody can tell you what to do and when to do it. You see, part of denial, part of losing your life, part of taking up your cross is recognizing that I am no longer sovereign over my life. Actually, I've never been sovereign over my life. I have always tried to appear and live in such a way that I was sovereign over my life, but I recognize there is one sovereign. There is a king and a lord, and there's only one place in my life, and that is dedicated to God. It's interesting that Jesus asks us to give up the one thing that we, that we want the most our right to do what we want to do, our life. But it's interesting, the example that we see early in the Gospels. You see, we see the story of a little girl, a teenage girl who's met by an angel. And the angel says, you're pregnant. And you can imagine what went through the mind of Mary as a teenage girl hearing that she was pregnant. That in my culture and in my society, I will forever be marked as immoral. I will forever be marked as an outsider. And I will give birth to a son that will eventually be arrested and hung on a cross. But what is Mary's response to the intervention of God in her life? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You see, there is a time and place in the life of the person that is called to follow Jesus where you recognize and you give up and you surrender and you realize my life is not my own. Never has been, never will be. There is someone else who governs and is sovereign over my life. It's the call to being a follower of Jesus. But the question I have for you this morning is what is your greatest fear? When you hear things like take up your cross and deny yourself and lose your life, what is the fear deep down in your soul? I can tell you what the fear is. The fear is that to surrender my rights, to surrender my life of privilege and self-sovereignty will be giving up on a dream will be giving up on what this world has to offer, will be giving up on what the culture says my life could look like. And every single one of us struggles at some level with surrendering everything because we say, but I need to be in control. I need to fulfill myself because I have an idea for what my life will look like. And if my life is in the hands of someone else, I'm not going to be fulfilled and I won't be satisfied and I won't get the life that I've always longed for. You see, the call of discipleship of Jesus Christ is the scariest call that we could ever receive because it's ripping away from us that which we think matters the most. If it's ripped away from me, what will my life look like in the hands of someone else? But let me pose to you this question. In light of that fear, what if you knew that there was one that was able to achieve for you and secure for you everything your heart wanted and more. 
what if you knew and had the confidence this morning that there is one, namely Jesus Christ, that through his life and through his cross and through his resurrection offers you the life that you could only imagine and says, no, it is true and can be true for you this morning. What would that do to your fear? Remember the word must? I must suffer, I must die, I must be raised. Why did Jesus say those things? What Jesus was saying is, I must do these things in order to secure and purchase the life for my disciples that they could never purchase for themselves. Think about it. Jesus says, I must suffer. It is through the suffering and rejection of Jesus that leads to what? Our love and acceptance. It is through the death of Jesus that the scriptures tell us we experience the forgiveness of God. And it is through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being raised. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, what does it say? We, he was raised for what? Our justification. What does justification mean? It means to be made right, to be approved by God. You see, the reason Jesus says, I must suffer, I must die, I must be raised, is because through him and only through him can we have love, forgiveness, and approval. And it's the very things you long for. There is not one single person in this room that doesn't long to be loved. There's not one person in this room that doesn't long to be accepted. There's not one person in this room that doesn't long and crave for perfect forgiveness. I know that because I've talked to you. There are people that come into this church every single week with guilt and shame and burdens of what my life should have looked like, what my life could have looked like, longing for a clean slate, longing for the guilt and the shame to be removed because of regrets along the way. And there's not one person in this room that doesn't long to be justified. You do, you, whether you realize it or not, live your entire life to be justified. You live your entire life to be approved. Does my life matter? Does my life mean anything? Am I significant? Longing to be approved. And what Jesus says, the reason I must do all these things is it's because the only way I will secure for them what they long for, what their soul craves, what the inner self craves. You see, what the world says, and you don't have to look too far on television to find these things, but you got every guru saying, you know what your problem is in life? You got to love yourself more. You've got to forgive yourself. You know what your problem is? You just haven't gotten to the place where you're able to forgive yourself. And you need to justify yourself. You need to prove that you matter. And it sounds good. The problem is you can't. You don't have the ability or the capacity to love yourself perfectly, to forgive yourself perfectly, and to approve yourself and justify yourself perfectly. And that's why Jesus says, I must. You see, the only way we can truly deny ourselves and take up our cross and lose our life is by looking to the one that took up the cross for us. And because Jesus took up the cross for us, we now in return can take up our cross. You see, when Jesus says, deny yourself, Jesus turns into the counselor. You see, what 
what do we do in counseling? We're called to deny. Deny a relationship. Deny an addiction. Deny a substance. So Jesus takes on the role of counselor here. He says, deny your inner self that says you can somehow love yourself enough, forgive yourself enough, and justify yourself enough. But this is where it gets funny. In response, Jesus says, deny yourself, but follow me. Could you imagine paying $150 for counseling or however much it costs? And the counselor is saying, deny whatever's going on in your life. And for the next three months, this is what I want you to do. I just want you to follow me around. What? That's the solution? Yeah, follow me around for three months, and then we'll circle back up and see how that's going. Probably wouldn't pay the $150. You see, this is where Jesus becomes the upside-down counselor. This is where Jesus becomes the counselor that was promised, the wonderful counselor in Isaiah. See, Jesus doesn't say, deny yourself, and then here's the template for the next three months. Try these things, and then we'll follow up. He just says, follow me. Why? Because he says, it's only in me can you find love. Only in me can you find forgiveness. Only in me can you find justification and approval. I am the remedy. I am the remedy. And so deny yourself. He says you need to, at some point in your life, recognize that your inner self can't love you enough and forgive you enough and justify you enough. You need the perfect one to love and forgive and to justify. It's the only religion in the world that says lose your life in order to get a life. It's the upside-down kingdom. So I asked you this morning, what does it profit? What does it benefit to have the whole world? Everything this world has to offer, but to lose your soul. What does it profit to have a lot of stuff, but to lose your soul? What does it profit to get that promotion and lose your soul? What does it profit to get finally the dream home and to lose your soul? What does it profit to have the greatest summer vacation in a couple months and lose your soul? What does it profit to have the greatest retirement plan only to lose your soul? What does it profit to be well-known and well-liked and approved and famous and beautiful only to lose your soul? What does it profit for my children to be a great athlete only for them to lose their soul? Patrick Morley, a man that's dedicated his life to working with men, Father's Day weekend, was on a plane and he was sitting next to a man that seemed distressed. And he started to just make some small talk. And Patrick Morley said, hey, I'm traveling to see my kids. It's Father's Day weekend. Are you going to be with your family? And the man buried his face in his hands. And he said, no, I've lost my wife. Strange for my kids. And I don't understand. I am three times as successful as my father. I've done everything and I've gained everything this world has to offer, but the deep nagging fear when I go to bed every night is that I somehow just missed it all. I asked you this morning, Jesus' invitation is clear. Deny yourself, 
Take up your cross. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? A disciple of his? He invites you today. Let me close with this. Every morning I wake up and I get ready. There are two things in my closet that I look at every day. It's a picture of my dad. And he's dressed as he's coming home from work in a business in business attire. And there's a whistle. It was his coach's whistle. My, my dad owned his own business, and he coached high school football on the side. And for in his entire adult life, those two things defined my dad and his identity, his business and his coaching. And I look at that picture of him in a suit and his coach's whistle every morning before I leave. Many of you know that I lost my dad 10 years ago to cancer. He was 60, I was 27. The very last time I saw my dad, days away from dying, the man that for his entire life was defined by grit and hard work and determination and business and coaching, the man that had gained it all, suddenly was losing it all. And my dad could barely talk, could hardly breathe. He couldn't even stand up, but he insisted that I pick him up and hold him. And he grabbed me tight and he whispered in my ear the last words I ever heard my dad speak. He whispered in my ear, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. The man who gained it all, the man who had it all, at the end of his life realized I could have it all. But Jesus needs to be the lover of my soul. You want to get a life? Jesus says, come and follow me.